This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato, hanging out with Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American. And for the rest of the hour, we're talking food chemistry, the chemistry of cooking and the research behind developing new crops, specifically this time squash. Now, you can see squash everywhere, right, in this holiday season. You've got those carved pumpkins. They're actually squash, believe it or not. Those giant award-winning pumpkins are squash, too. How do they get so big? And what's the difference between a gourd and a squash? And how do you breed a better squash? We actually have somebody who knows the answer to all of those things, Dr. Chris Hernandez, Assistant Professor of Plant Breeding at the University of New Hampshire in Durham, New Hampshire. He's director of the university's squash, pumpkin, and melon breeding program. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me on. How did you get interested in squash and pumpkin breeding? Yeah, I suppose it's kind of a, a different type of profession. Um, but yeah, you know, my dad was really into gardening. He got me into gardening. Um, and I was doing some gardening at a community garden, and there was a guy there growing giant pumpkins. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And it's what got me started, um, kind of motivated me to go on and study uh, plant breeding and genetics. So now I understand, started in the garden. I understand this year's world record for pumpkin was nearly 3,000 pounds. <laughs> That's right, 2,700. 20, how, how do growers get pumpkins to grow so big? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's nature and nurture. So you need to have the right seeds or the right, you know, the seeds that have that genetic potential. Um, and then you need to have the perfect growing conditions um, for those seeds, for that plant. Can I, can I buy seeds and grow my own giant pumpkin? You could. So the, the variety that you know all giant pumpkins are thought to come from is called uh, Dill's Atlantic Giant. So it was developed by a farmer in Canada in like the 1970s. Um, so you can get that seed, but that's actually not your best bet. So oh, no. kind of your over-the-counter seed um, is not really what growers are using now. They kind of have their own exchange of seeds where there's been selecting and breeding as a community. And so those seeds are kind of what you want to get. Yeah, we actually have a video of a giant pumpkin grower who uh, ed ed entered into a contest, uh, Sci-Fi's Flora Lichtman videoed this, at, uh, and you can see this video. It's amazing at sciencefriday.com uh, slash pumpkin. All right, let's get into some basics here. Pumpkins and squash are part of the cucurbit, the cucurbit family. Is that right? What other plants are included in cucurbits? That's right. They're cucurbits from the cucurbitaceae family is the full name there, but we call them cucurbits. So it includes, like you said, squash, pumpkins, melons, cucumbers, watermelons, wax gourds, pretty much all of your vining fruits and vegetables that you know about are, well, they're all fruit, um, but they're cucurbits. Cucurbits. I, thank you for correcting me on that one. What, what, so what's the difference between a summer squash, let's say, versus a winter squash? So that's all about the time that you eat the fruit. So a summer squash you eat at before it's mature, whereas a winter squash you eat at physiological maturity or when the, the fruit and the seed are completely developed. So it's you know eating it at 60 days versus eating it closer to six days after pollination. Six days? That's all six it takes? Six to eight days after pollination is a, a summer squash or zucchini wow. is usually, yeah. And then the winter squash you say takes 60 days. That is a difference. Yep. What is the speaking of differences? What's the difference between a gourd and a squash? You know, that's actually kind of a contentious. Um, it's a bit of a debate among cucurbit scholars. I would say, uh, if you look at the last five decades, there's a lot of argument about that terminology. Um, so I might be get myself into trouble here, but <laughs> I would say, you know, a squash is something that we eat. 
Uh, whereas a gourd is your a, a hard shelled ornamental type of squash. Hmm. Now I, I looked That's this sort up. Of how I define it? Yeah, I looked this up in Wiki, and Wiki, the Wikipedia says that gourds have been found in sites dating back thirteen thousand BCE. That that's astounding. So yeah, the gourds are kind of more of like that undomesticated type. Um, so I think my my understanding is as far back as around ten thousand years ago, uh, we were domesticating them. Hmm. All right, let's see if we can go to the phones and get a call in. Our number, 844-724-8255. Crystal in Rochester, New York. Hi, Crystal. Hi. Hi there. Um, I was wondering, so I grow pumpkins myself and, like, use them to make pumpkin pie and stuff, but one of my friends told me that if you get canned pumpkin, it's actually Hubbard squash, and that that's better to use for making stuff, and I wondered if that was true, and if so, why do they use Hubbard squash, and why do they call it pumpkin? Good, good question. Uh, let me let me ask: is, is 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 there not pumpkin in a can of pumpkin, Doctor Hernandez? So Hernandez? Not, <laughs> not what we would call a pumpkin. So we typically would call a pumpkin like something looks like a jack lantern, right? And right. that's actually right. not what you want to eat. Um, you can eat it, but it's the lowest quality, I would say. So yeah, that's exactly correct. Um, so a canned pumpkin is actually either a Hubbard, which is a different species from the jack lantern or um, more like a butternut type of squash. Wow. Um, wow. So in a lot of other countries, we call they call eating squash a pumpkin. Right. So Now, most yeah. of us have gone pumpkin picking it, but you've worked on breeding pumpkins specifically for these you-pick-em-up operations, right? What, what are the traits that the you-pick farmers are looking for? Yeah, so you know, if you ask anyone in the pumpkin business, they'll tell you that they're not in the business of selling fruit. They're in the business of selling a handle. So the, the handle is actually a trait that we focus a lot on. Because if you think about it, you're not going to buy a pumpkin that doesn't have a handle, right? And you also couldn't pick it. If the handle comes off when you pick it up, that's not a good pumpkin. So we put a lot of effort into having a handle with a really good attachment on that pumpkin. And then from there, we look at you know different types of colors, sizes. Um, and then, of course, having a pumpkin that's going to grow well for the grower. So it has that disease resistance and the yield potential. Does, yeah, the handle gets a lot of care. Does the handle have a, a scientific name to it? Uh, the peduncle. <laughs> so, yeah. The peduncle. That's a great name. Is that true for it then all, all veggies or fruits that have a handle would be called the peduncle? Oh, hmm. Hmm. I'm not 100% sure on the answer to that one. Okay. But I know in squash, it's a peduncle. There you go. In squash, is it called a peduncle while it's still on the vine, or does it only become a peduncle after you cut it off? So that, so I, I guess I would still call it peduncle on the vine. So that pedestal is that part that that holds the, the undeveloped fruit, and that matures it to the peduncle. Mm-hmm. Now, as you're as you're growing and designing pumpkins, are there any other decorative pumpkins or gourds? Are there are there trends going on? Yeah, I would see. You know, something that I'm seeing now is like a lot of people are liking those white pumpkins. So we're starting to do some work with developing pumpkins that uh, have that white color that stay white and also i'm seeing a lot more round or stacker type pumpkins which is a different species than the jack-o'-lantern it's a cucurita maxima and so i'm starting to look at those wow. now as well let's go to so. bill in eastern maryland hi bill bill go ahead yeah um i'm i'm, I'm interested i love delicata squash 
and, uh, and but they seem so. It's I seldom see them in the markets, and I don't understand why they taste delicious. Can you explain that? Hmm. Do we have an answer there? Yeah, that is a good question. So a delicata squash, pretty related to an acorn, um, usually higher sugar content. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I don't. Some people just think they're too sweet. I've heard that as a complaint. But yeah, I can't say why on the market you don't see that many delicatas. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. You know, I think I hear about a story like this every year. Someone throws out a pumpkin in their backyard or into their compost heap. And then you've got a pumpkin patch the next year of all these seeds have sprouted. How likely is this to happen? I see it all the time. We call those volunteers. Volunteers. Um, so yeah, volunteer plant. Oh, we think we think, think we've lost them there. Do you ever did you ever do that, Sophie? Throw a pumpkin into your pumpkin? No, no, I did. I did worry that uh, apparently watermelons belong to the same group, and I did worry that I would grow a watermelon inside by swallowing watermelon seeds. But I never tried huh. throwing it out in the yard and see to see what would grow. That's awesome. Yeah, Chris, have you tried that yourself with the pumpkin? Throwing it back there, uh, growing them in the compost. Yeah. That, you know, that is often, you know, not in the compost pile itself, but they will, they do do well if you grow them on kind of a mound of compost. Like, yeah. That's kind yeah. of like if you mound up the soil, that's a good, good for them. They love growing like that. Now, so. I know, I know that you're currently breeding acorn squash. What are the traits you try to optimize for? So with acorn squash, we, you know, like I said, we, we kind of like those grower traits, which I think of like good disease resistance you know, earlier, so they get a harvest earlier. And on the quality end, we look at the, the dry matter, right. which is a kind of a proxy for starch, and then also the sugar content for bricks. We actually wow. we freeze them and then we squeeze them to get that bricks concentration. Freeze them and squeeze them. I have to remember yeah. that about squash. I want to bring in, in another guest to the squash convo to talk about the cooking side of things. Dr. Dan Souza, chef at America's Test Kitchen based in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Do you have a favorite squash that you use or prefer? Yeah, I have a I have a couple. So um, one of my recent faves is the honey nut squash, which um, I think our, our other guests can probably speak to how that came to be. But uh, what I really like about it, it has a lot of the traits of butternut in terms of that really nice sweetness. But it is uh, a little on the drier side. It browns really, really nicely when you're roasting it. And um, the skins are a little bit thinner. So it's, it's one that I tend to leave the skins on. So I think that that's one of my faves. Um, and Delicata, it doesn't sound like it's as popular as um, I think it should be. But that one also is, we call it kind of the easiest squash uh, in the test kitchen because it does have super thin skins. There's, right. like, you're, there's no peeling to it. You just slice it up and go. Um, and I actually find it to be less sweet than other ones, um, which I'm curious to find out if, if that's just my own perception of it. Chris, what do you think? Huh? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. We usually, so we, we, we normally measure the bricks, which is not necessarily like the same as eating it sweetness. So we mm. see that they usually have pretty high bricks. Um, but yeah, it could also just be that some of the varieties in the market just aren't fully ripe that you've had or that they just aren't sweet varieties. Mm. So Interesting. That's interesting. Let's go to Frankie in Western Massachusetts. Hi, Frankie. Hi there. Hello. Hi there. How's it going? Fine. Go ahead. So I was remembering uh, when I was a kid, I read one of those Little House in the Prairie books called Farmer Boy. Um, and in it, at one point, Almanzo decides to grow a pumpkin using milk. 
he kind of he digs a hole in the ground and he puts a bowl of milk there. He puts a string in the bowl, cuts a small hole in the vine of the pumpkin and puts the other end of the string in the vine. And the pumpkin like grows huge. It becomes massive. And it's all supposedly because it's a milk fed pumpkin. And I've done some kind of cursory Googling and I cannot figure out if this is actually something that would work or if this was some kind of invention of the author. And so I was wondering, is that something, is that a type of kind of pumpkin uh, steroid that people actually <laughs> use or that actually could work? Chris, have you heard about this? I have, and I was actually wondering if milk and pumpkins would come up. Um, a lot of giant pumpkin growers have tried using milk, and it doesn't seem to help at all. So the idea is the calcium might help with the fruit development. Um, and at least for milk, we don't, we don't see that. Well, thank you, Frankie. That was an interesting question. Of course. Thanks for the insight. You're welcome. Uh, let, let's, so many people have questions. Let's go to Donna in Florida. Hi, Donna. Welcome to Science Friday. Hello. I, I am, are you talking to Donna? It kind of cut out. Yes, I'm talking to Donna. Okay, great. Um, I have a question. I've kind of missed out in life because I don't like watermelon or honeydew or cantaloupe or any of those. I don't even like the smell of it. And I was wondering if that's like I can eat pumpkin, I can eat butternut squash, acorn squash. Is there some chemical that you know that's in those particular ones that like a family, subfamily or a whatever, mm. you know? Good question. Chris, you ever heard of that? Um, I mean, there are definitely some volatiles going on in there. I can't name the, the exact chemicals off the top of my head here, but I do know that a lot of people, including my my technician in the program, does not they do not like the smell or the, the pump of the the melon. It really bothers them. Huh. So, so it's not uncommon. That's interesting. No. This let me just give a break. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. We're talking about squash, pumpkins, food science uh, for the rest of the hour. If you want to join us, eight four four seven two four. Uh, eight two five five. Uh, Chris, what's the biggest challenge to designing new foods here, especially with your squash? Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of challenges. What's the biggest challenge? Hmm. Yeah. What what's what's hard? I mean, do you do it the old fashioned way, with you know, you with pollination instead of, you know, with genetics, at least you know, genetic engineering. Yeah, we don't do any genetically engineering, um, so it's all kind of through traditional crossbreeding and that sort of thing. Um, we know with squash and pumpkins, the hardest part is they take up so much space. So it's really hard to have like large populations that you can look through to find what you're looking for because mm. um, they just take up so much space. So that's a challenge that I have. Mm. Um, it's also always hard to know because when you're breeding, it takes six to eight years to get that new variety. Um, right. It's hard to know what's going to be popular six to eight years out. So that kind of prediction part of it. Well, before um, we, before we go to the break, difficult. I want to get to Kirk in Portland, who has a really interesting question. Hi, Kirk. Welcome to Science Friday. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for taking my call. Hey, I'm a retired science teacher from high school, and I've been having a garden for years and years. And I thought, you know, I'll do what Gregor Mendel did, and I'll collect seeds and a uh, cheaper way of growing flowering plants like marigolds and zinnias and dahlias. I've had success with you, that. you got to get to your question because we're running out of time. Yeah, yeah. I, I saved zucchini and spaghetti squash seeds, and I got gourds. So it seems like gourds must be some, some uh, wild type of, of squash, inedible, wow. but beautiful. Okay. Let me, Chris, what do you think of that? Hmm. I would be surprised if a gourd was apparent in there. I'm wondering if maybe 
you had an outcrossing event where somebody was growing gourds near you, the bees moved it over, and then when you saved seeds, you had that gourd genetics in there. Can any of them cross-pollinate and you get some weird answer at the end? Oh, yeah. Um, so within a species, they, they can cross-pollinate. So a zucchini and a jack lantern can cross-pollinate. A gourd can cross-pollinate with them. Even across species, to some extent, they can do that. So if you really want to save your seed, you should... Um, you really need to kind of keep the bees out and do the pollination yourself. Well, That's I'll the surest way to make sure you get what you keep hoping for. Do the pollination yourself. A little paintbrush with the <laughs> back and forth from the flowers? Yeah, we actually, um, so we close the flower with a twist tie before they open. The day before they open, you can tell because they start to get a little yellow at the tips. Um, and then we, the next in the morning, we, we take the, the male off the plant, we remove its flowers, and we use it like a paintbrush, the male flower on the female flower. And then we... Then we close the female flower back up to keep the bees out. Wow, that is fascinating. Dr. Hernandez, thank you for taking time to be with us today. Yeah, thank you. It was great being on. Dr. Chris Hernandez, Assistant Professor of Plant Breeding at the University of New Hampshire in, in Durham. And he's the, the director of the university's Squash, Pumpkin, and Melon Breeding Program.